We are in chapter 6 of Revelation, and this is the second section. The first section was the, the, the throne room of God with the enthronement of Yahweh and the enthronement of the Lamb. That God had a scroll that was sealed with seven seals that was the title deed to the earth, as well as all the promises of God to redeem the world. It's not just the title deed to the earth. It is also the will, um, the will of when a will is broken and open and put into action, it allows all those promises to be fulfilled. And so not only does it say, I have the right to own these things, but it says that I'm, this is what I'm going to give to my children. This is what I'm going to give to my heirs. And that's the idea, too, that these are all the promises of God, that God is saying, I'm going to do this for you. And if you go back in the prophets, God has promised to return them back to the land, the Garden of Eden. He has promised to eliminate all evil and all sin and all war and all violence and all death. And he has promised that he will bring a land flowing with milk and honey for the entire planet and all the earth um, where there will be no more death and that God will live and dwell with us on the planet for all eternity and we will all know him face to face and dwell with them. And those prom- and all the nations would come to God and all the nations would dwell with him. And so this is the scroll that is saying now it will be fulfilled. And so, but in the already not yet. And so this, this is the idea of the scroll that is being given here. So now we come to the actual seals, the actual judgments. And this is where we start dividing more and more into the futurists, the preterists, the, the idealists, and the historicists. This is where all the many different views begin to break away from each other and start having different interpretations. And like, like I said before, the major dispute is on when is this taking place? Has it already happened in the time of right after the Jesus? Is, are we currently in it right now, or is it yet to come? Those are pretty much the three major disputed things. And then the second major dispute among this is how literally do we take these things versus how metaphorical they are. And that's really, other than that, yeah, there's some minor things, but other than that, those are the two major issues that Christians divide over, debate, discuss, and hopefully not break fellowship over. So in this section, John sees a vision of Yahweh's righteous judgments for the unfaithfulness of humanity, known in Scripture as the day of Yahweh. All throughout the Bible, God keeps talking about the day of Yahweh, the day of Yahweh, or you see in your Bible as the day of the Lord. Now, whenever you see all capital L-O-R-D, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the English word for Yahweh. So it's letting you know that the word in Hebrew is Yahweh there, the personal, intimate name of God, the relational name of God. It's the day of the Lord or the day of Yahweh is something that he keeps talking about. And what you need to realize is the day of Yahweh is not a day. It's not a day that he puts in the calendar um, that is going to be future like in 3042. That's the day of Yahweh and God's gone in the calendar and marking X's off for when he's going to come back. Okay, the day of Yahweh is any day that God divinely steps into space, time, and matter in order to judge some nation in a very direct way. 
The day of Yahweh has already happened multiple times. This is very clear in Isaiah and Hosea, Habakkuk. God says, on the day of Yahweh, I will bring judgment on Israel and take them in exile. On the day of Yahweh, I will come and bring judgment on Judah, a separate day of Yahweh. On the day of Yahweh, I will judge the Babylonians and crush them and destroy them for what they've done to you. And then these all foreshadow a ultimate day of Yahweh, the second coming of Jesus Christ, where he will judge the entire world. And so the day of Yahweh is any event where God steps into space, time, and matter to specifically judge a nation or nations for their corruption of power, their oppression of other people, and their idolatry, a violation of loving God and loving others, and where it's become so massive and so evil and so corrupt that he can no longer tolerate it and has to deal with them on a Sodom and Gomorrah kind of a level or a taking them into exile kind of a level. This all points to a future and ultimate day of Yahweh. The day of Yahweh here could be happening throughout time in history, or it could be the ultimate, literal, final one. Now, obviously, Revelation is going to talk about the day of Yahweh, and when we get to chapter 19, it's very clear that we are in the ultimate, final day of Yahweh. It is the day of unprecedented woe. Woe is the deepest crying out, lament, anguish, depression that you can possibly experience because of just absolute loss of life around you in any kind of a way. Um, it, it's just where you feel like your world is caving in on you um, because of the death of a loved one, the, the death of everything around you, like living in France during World War II kind of a thing, or just the judgment of God coming down on you directly. And so this is the idea of woe, and you're going to see three woes when we get into here. The day of Yahweh is seen in the plagues sent on Egypt and in other events throughout history. The seals are organized into by four major judgments, followed by two secondary judgments, and then concluding with a final seal. The first four major judgments, these are going to be the four horsemen, and then two secondary judgments concluded with the final seal, which will unleash a earthquake and a storm and fire and the destruction of kingdoms on earth and the idea that this is leading into the second coming of Jesus Christ. It also unleashes the next set of seven as well. The points of the judgments is not only to judge the world for its rebellion against Yahweh, but to lead them to truth of who the lion and the lamb is so that they may be redeemed and sealed. Remember we talked about this. The point of God's judgment is not just to judge people for evil and sin, but also to open their eyes to the need to repent and come back to the Lamb in order to receive his redemption and his salvation. The previous vision of Jesus Christ is the risen and vindicated Son of Man and chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, provides the basis for his authority to judge and redeem creation and the following revealing of Yahweh's purposes. Then the supreme power love of Yahweh are seen clearly in 4 through 5 as the Lamb is slain for humanity so that they may escape Yahweh's judgment and dwell with them. All these judgments, no matter how harsh, no matter how cosmic, no matter how climactic or um, um, devastating they are, must always be put in the light that the Lamb died and gave his own blood and his own life to purchase all people to free them from experiencing this very thing in order to be saved and dwell with him. If you divorce these judgments 
from Christ's actions on the cross, then you are pretty much left with kind of a good justification or a good argument that he's just a mean, cruel, vindictive, capricious God. But in the light of the cross, I mean, you have to work really hard to even make that argument without the cross. But you ha- you cannot make the argument at all with the cross, and that's something you must understand. Therefore, Yahweh is justified in judging humanity for having rejected him in his will. But he also judges them for their lack of love for his creation, for the way that he misused their power to oppress. They misuse their power to oppress others by their own gain. Yahweh cares deeply for his creation and shows love for those who have been victimized by doing out dueling out justice on those who violated them. For example, the great earthquake that kills many is offset by the cry of the martyrs and the believers for justice. So even though he will come in and bring an earthquake that kills thousands and thousands of people. It's offset by the fact that the martyrs are crying out for justice for the horrific, horrendous things that have been done to them by governments. And study world history. Governments are nasty when it comes to oppressing and slaughtering and enslaving people. And God will hold them accountable one day. As humans, sometimes, especially Americans and especially a certain set of Americans, the idea is God's justice is really unattractive. And really are true. And, and rightfully so. Like, as a human, and you're watching these things happen, and God doing this, it's a legitimate to say, thing to say, how could you, God? How could you, God? How can a good and loving God do this kind of a thing? First, we must understand that God is completely justified to do these things because he gets sin way better than we do. We understand what it's like to be a sinner, but we don't get how absolutely atrocious sin is. We are finite, limited, sinful beings. And it is very hard for us to be horrified and shocked by sin when we ourselves are sinners. You can be horrified and shocked by the atrocities of genocide and mutilations and all kinds of stuff. But we don't really truly appreciate how evil that really is. And we don't really truly appreciate how evil even our own thoughts or even our lying and stealing and cheating and selfishness and corruption truly is when we are sinners waiting and wallowing in sin, justifying our sin many times, very slow to repent many times, and turning to God, and really, and a lot of times we're like, well, at least I'm not as bad as Hitler, or at least it's not as bad as our neighbor. Our thoughts tend to go there very quickly. We don't know what it's like to be an absolute, perfect, pure, righteous being who knows sin in no way, has never participated in it, never desired it, and to look down on a world that is sinning and truly be horrified. Truly be horrified. The horror that you feel for the greatest atrocities committed by humans is nothing compared for the horror that he feels by every little sin that we commit as a righteous, perfect being. And even those words are pathetic compared to what he's really experiencing because we have no, we have no comparison. We're not righteous beings. And so we can't do that. And so we must realize that when we look at God, and we, I mean just any human, and say, how could you? What basis do you have for that? First, you're committing 
many of the same things that somebody else is doing and maybe on different levels. Two, the only reason that you have any sense of right and wrong is because that came from him. And you must, and this is a much longer argument, and I can go into this some other time, but you have to realize C.S. Lewis did a really good job of this in Mere Christianity. Other people have delved into this too. Um, Dominion uh, is a book written, What's So Great About Christianity um, is a good book. But basically you have to understand that our, the only reason we have any concept of morality or righteousness is because it comes from God. And this has been proven philosophically. This has been proven in deductive and inductive arguments. There, there, there is no basis. The only reason we have a sense of right and wrong is because it comes from God. And then we take that right and wrong, we throw it back on him and say, how dare you? That, that doesn't make sense. Second, as Westerners, we live in a very sterile, sanitized culture compared to the rest of the world. Now, don't get me wrong. I know that you, some people in this room, and have either personally experienced horrid atrocities and crimes committed against you, uh, violations of your body and your mind in some kind of a way. Some of you might have been in other countries and other things have been done to you. And I get that maybe some of you know people who you've, you've had to defend them or rescue them or, or help them through horrid, tragic, horrid crimes committed against their bodies and their minds and their persons. And I'm not diminishing that in any kind of a way. But corporately speaking, as an American nation, we have been largely protected and sheltered for massive atrocities against humans on large-scale levels. None of us on a corporate level have gone through what the Hootsies and the Tootsies have gone through when they were just genocide and massacred. None of us really know what it's like for our entire family to the vast majority of our family to have a government come in and just massacre us and cut off body parts in front of us and, and mothers and women be violated and raped and children be taken away and their heads cut off and that kind of stuff right in front of our eyes and we flee for our lives as our houses are being burned down and, and we're refugees living in swampy, muddy tents in some other country as that government like now begins to oppress us in some kind of a way. None of us have really never experienced it. If you've watched movies, Saving Private Ryan, as they're moving through France, none of us have grown up in a place where we're literally this little child watching our mother be blown apart with a bomb that just got dropped on a house, and there's nothing left of our house in any kind of way, as we don't know where to go and turn in any kind of way, and this is happening left and right around us. You study world history, it is absolutely horrific. And I'm not undermining anybody's suffering or sin, but largely speaking, we have very comfortable lives and very sheltered lives compared to the world. And, and then when you talk about the righteous will lay their feet in the blood of the wicked, Isaiah tells us, that's only really truly understood by people under Saddam Hussein and Fidel Castro. When Saddam Hussein was take kidnapping your loved ones, in the middle of the night, out of their beds, and they were disappearing. The drug cartels go down to Mexico and ask them about the drug cartels. Okay, I had a friend from Mexico who said, when you're going down the street and the cops are there and the drug cartels are there, you stay in the middle. 
because either one of them can just make you disappear and skin you alive or cut body parts away and make you disappear and throw you in a pit with thousands of other people and your family will never know where you ever are and still don't. They're still discovering mass burial sites of Saddam Hussein. Watch the movie The Killing Fields. It's a fin- the Killing Fields. It's about what the Khmer Rouge did to people in Cambodia. And, what, and there's a scene where the guy actually has to swim kind of crawl through a giant field of dead bodies they're just thrown into we don't and i'm not doing this to like ruin your night and fill you with nightmares i'm doing to say it's easy for americans to say how can you god but when saddam hussein was finally captured and hung all of iraq was celebrating and you might think wow that's twisted and jacked up that you would celebrate a hanging but you haven't been under the thumb of a dictator None of us have. We have no idea what that's like. And as much as you might think that this overturn from Trump to Biden was messy and wrong, at least the government wasn't coming in and shooting and killing everybody else to take the new position. Like, that's what happens on a regular basis in another country. Lots of people die on the Capitol building as they're just machine-gunning people down to become the new president over the nation. And so it's very easy for us to say, God doesn't have the right to punish people. And when we do hear about these events in the news, they get very whitewashed. And our textbooks are very whitewashed. Go watch some YouTube channels. There's one that I am strangely obsessed with right now. Um, It's called The History of Fleck, F-L-E-E-K. Beware, it basically is like, this is what really happened in Vietnam. This is what the Russians really did in World War II. This is what America really did, da, 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 da. And it's all those things that our textbook won't talk about. The real crimes of our government, the real things that were happening of other people's governments. And it's just like, and you think, oh, that was the ancient world, right? No, no, it was just the 1970s, what American soldiers were doing in Vietnam. And it was just the 1970s, what Vietnam people were doing to American soldiers and other people. And then there's, there's, this, there's this world out there that we have put up a curtain to not because it's just easier to say, I want my latte and I want my watch and my Netflix and I want to have a good, comfortable job than to really allow the reality of the world to break through that curtain and we have to breathe it in. And it's hard. And the, even things like the sound of freedom is trying to shove the sex slave trade industry into your face. And a lot of people are like, conspiracy. No, it's not. It's the most well-documented factual thing that's happening right now. I mean, there's so much evidence here. We don't really know what this is like to really cry out and say, God, kill them all. God, kill them all for what they've done to us. Read the Psalms. David, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, kill them all. Now, I'm not saying that's okay, but the emotion, the desire for it is not necessarily wrong. Third, We must realize we truly do want a God who punishes evil. If some horrific evil thing happened to you and your dad was like, uh, you would be so hurt, so wounded, so angry at them. We see this with Jacob. When Dinah gets violated and he just is like, okay, whatever. The brothers are, what the crap? Like, seriously, dad. And they're so angry at their dad because he doesn't care about what's happened to Dinah. When David's daughter is violated, he doesn't do anything about it. And Absalom's son is so ticked at his father. 
It's interesting that people at one moment will say, how could a good and loving God send people to hell? How dare he? How can you? How can a loving God do that? But then they turn around and say, why does God allow so much evil? Why doesn't he punish it and deal with it? You can't have both. We are so angry at God for, for punishing people. And then when he doesn't punish people, we get angry at him for not punishing people. And because deep down inside, when, 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 when people get shot by cops, what, the entire nation blows up for justice, and rightfully so. Then how much more, when you're talking about an entire nation that's just doing horrific things? And so we need to understand, we really truly deep down inside want a God who will deal with evil and really truly punish it. We want to know that when we're violated, that we have a Father in Heaven who says, I care, and I will deal with it. And, and, and th- these are just three points to keep in mind. And I know the issue is way more complicated than that. And I know there's more things to talk about. But these are just three things to keep in mind. The other thing you must understand is that the most common way that God punishes people is by giving them over to themselves. Most of the time, God does not bring lightning bolts down from Heaven or strike you down with a plague, or wipe out your family personally with his own hands. The vast majority of the time that God punishes nations and people is by giving you over to what you want. This is clearly seen in Romans 1 and 2, where God says they pursued idolatry, they pursued unnatural sexual behavior, they pursued all these things, and God gave them over to it. To allow it to happen. We've heard this saying, be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. One of the worst things that God could ever do is allow you to have what you want because it will probably end up destroying you in some kind of a way. And so this is what God does more than often. If you're pursuing some kind of sinful behavior, He will give you over to it and He'll allow you to pursue it. And if you know anything about addictions and sin of any kind, any kind, they typically start destroying you. And they start eroding away at your family, your own conscience, your own spiritual, mental, and emotional health. And that becomes a judgment itself. Many times people don't need you to pour consequences on them and judge them and punish them. Because life has a, does a really good job itself. God has actually designed the universe with wisdom. And if you do the right thing, things will typically go well for you. If you go against the way that God has designed your mind and your emotions and your body and the flow of the universe, the universe will push back on you and begin to eat you and destroy you. It's just the way he made it happen. And so you don't really have to punish people most of the time. Life will do a pretty good job itself. We can see this in multiple examples in the Bible, not just Romans, and in, in a theological, philosophical kind of sense. But when you have to realize that when Paul and Peter and James are writing theological, abstract, philosophical concepts about who God and does, these are the, the, these are the points that they have learned from the First Testament. They didn't just sit there and think, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, yeah, that's how God is. And they wrote it down. They read, wrote, read the First Testament and they saw God at work and then they explained what all that meant in the epistles. Without the First Testament, you have no epistles. And so Paul, reading the First Testament, sees God giving him over. Israel had a king by the name of Yahweh. And all of a sudden, the Philistines start becoming stronger and more powerful. And they become afraid. And they say, 
give us a king like all the other nations. Right? The problem is not that they wanted a king. Deuteronomy gave them prescriptions for how to have a king. They needed to have a king eventually because you can only have King Jesus if he comes from the line of kings. The problem was not that they wanted a king. The problem is they rejected the leader that God had already chosen for them, Samuel, and they wanted one that was just like the other nations, not one that was unique and righteous like prescribed in Deuteronomy, but one that acted like all the other nations. So what did God do? He gave them exactly what they wanted. And one of the coolest speeches ever, not really, but kind of, it's, in my, it's one of my favorites. Samuel comes to him and God says, tell the people this. And Samuel repeats what God says. And he says, on that day when you get a king and he comes and he takes your sons from your farms and forces them to fight wars that you do not want to fight. And he takes your daughters and forces to serve in the palace and marry people that you don't want. And he taxes you greater and greater and greater. And then eventually oppresses you. On that day, remember, I told you so. And then he walks away. Okay, there is a time and a place by God that you can say, I told you so. And, and so God gave him over. And, and, the, and, and, and every single time a king or a prophet disobeys a direct command of God, God kills him. But he didn't do that to Saul because Israel had to reap the consequences of getting what they wanted. He waited a long time before he did that to Saul, only because Israel had to reap the consequences. He did the same thing with the idolatry. He gave them over to their own gods. We see this in Judges chapter 10, where they're, they're, they're being oppressed by other nations, just like Deuteronomy said was going to happen. And, and they cry out to God, and God says, why don't you go to your pagan gods that you've been worshiping? They were fine for you when everything was great. But now that the people are oppressing you, the very people that you turned away from me to, to worship their gods, now they are oppressing you, and your gods are not saving you. You can now come to me and cry for help. Go to your gods. I'm done with you. He gave them over to their gods. Now, eventually, he did say, okay, I will save you, because his ultimate desire is to redeem them, and he is a compassionate God, but he wanted them to sit in the failure of their gods for a while so that they would really truly see how Yahweh is better. This is exactly what he did with the Jews when Jesus came. We see this in Mark chapter 13, where Israel has been making more and more compromises with the Roman government. And then Jesus comes to them and says, I am here. And they said, we don't want you. And they make an alliance with the Roman government to kill him. And God says, I will give you over to the Roman government. This alliance will work today. But eventually, in about a few years, the Rome's going to come and smash you. And I'm going to allow it to happen because that's what you wanted. You want an alliance with them. We see there's a Babylon, too. When Hezekiah is like, hey, Babylon, let's make a treaty. And Isaiah was like, who were those people? And Hezekiah was like, it's Babylon. What did you show them? I showed them everything. And the, Isaiah says, the very people you made an alliance with and trusted in more than God, God's going to give you over to them. And they're going to come and destroy you and take everything that you show them. We see this over and over and over again, where God gives you over to what you want and what you pursue. And this is, I think, what you're really seeing in these plagues. I see, think that what you're seeing is that God will give you over to what you've pursued. Now, the two most common ways that God judges people in this kind of example are plagues. And using other nations. 
The two most common ways is plagues and other nations. And so when God gives you over, we don't do a very good job of taking care of ourselves. In fact, not only do we not do a very good job taking care of ourselves and preventing plagues from happening because we don't have the power to stop plagues, we like creating our own plagues and our own diseases and experimenting. And we've been doing this for a very, very long time. Okay? And so what God does, he gives them over. The plagues of Egypt, natural disasters. The other way is allowing other nations. You want to make alliances? We typically make alliances with other nations. We trust them. Every, when, when the Assyrians came and took Israel, they had made an alliance with the Assyrians. When the Babylonians came and took them over, they made an alliance with them. When the Persians came and took over, they had made an alliance with them first. When the Greeks came, they had made an alliance with them first. When the Romans came and overtook them, they made an alliance with them. They kept trusting in other nations rather than God. The very people that have attacked us as Americans throughout the years, we have made alliances with them in different kinds of ways. Or we have financially funded them. Financially have fun, funded them. And so these things happen. And so God does this through plagues and nations. And as we go through the judgments of the seals, you're going to see God using plagues and other nations. Military conquests and plagues. And once again, the idea here is the world is broken. And so most of the time, God is just taking his hands off the world and saying, you think you can do a better job of running everything? Fine. You put your hands on the world. This is exactly what told Job. Job said, you're not just for what you're allowing to happen to me. And God says, really? You think you can do a better job? Fine. Come up and take the throne. And you rule over the world better than me. The day that you can do that, I will dethrone myself and put you there. And that's what God does. Fine. You think you can run your nation better than me? Go, take the reins. And as your nation collapses underneath you and on top of you, hopefully even then you'll finally repent and cry out to God. And so this is what God does. He takes his hands off of nature, and he takes his hand off the governments, and he says, you can do it yourself. But like a good father who lets their kids say, stubborn, I can do it. And you're like, fine, you think you can do it? Go ahead and do it. And as they trip and fall and beat their head against the wall, you say, whenever you're ready to turn to me, I love you and I'm ready to pick you up and brush you off and help you do this better. And that's his greatest desire. And we're going to see that over and over again with the plagues. God will say, but they did not repent. They did not repent. What is this point? I want you to repent. That's my ultimate desire. Not to punish you, but for you to repent. Yahweh has given us an incredible amount of power to act however we want. And you can either surrender that power to him and experience life, or you can seize it with your own hands and then let everything fall apart around you in your finite stupidity. Uh, Two separate things. Your finiteness and your stupidity. Your stupidity is not finite. There is no bounds to it. Okay? Let's get to the seals. I really think these judgments are not really about God bringing fire and hell down upon you, but God just taking his hands off and allowing the natural things to happen. If this is the way that he's been doing it for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, I don't think he's specifically sending it. I think he's, now it will say he sent them out sometimes, but a lot of times he's just taking ownership for this. In some ways, God is indirectly responsible for the fact that he's not stopping it. If I have a kid, and that kid says, I can do it myself, and you're like, fine, you can do it yourself, and then they do the thing, and they run into the wall, and they hurt themselves, 
I'm not the one that made that happen. I did not take their thing and slam them into the wall. Right? That's a capricious, unloving God. Fine, you don't want my help? <laughs> slam you into the wall. That's what you get. That's not a loving God. But God does take ownership like a father did because if that kid does slam in the wall and hurt it, and if I, in some ways I am responsible because I allowed it and I didn't stop it. But I didn't allow it because I'm intentionally being angry and throwing them against the wall so they can get hurt. I'm allowing it that they'll hopefully realize that their stubbornness actually doesn't work and they'll turn to me. God will take responsibilities like who makes people deaf and blind when he talks to Moses? He's not saying, I made your children mute, because I can. He's saying, by allowing them to be born mute, I'm taking ownership for that because I could have stopped it and I didn't. And so this is what you're going to see. God is going to take ownership when the plagues come on the earth. He's going to take ownership when nations come in and invade. But it's not like he's making that happen and pushing them against you, because that would be a really messed up thing. But at the same time, he's taking ownership because he took his hands off the world and allowed it to happen. And I, that's the mixed language of the Bible. That's the mixed language of the Bible. Verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1. I looked on, and when a lamb opened once of the seven seals, I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a thunderous voice, Come. So I looked, and here came a white horse. Now when he says come, he means run up right to where the horse is and participate in the action. He's not saying, look, or come here, something really cool. He's like, I want you to get right up in there and see what is happening. Join it. I saw a white horse. The one who rode it had a bow, and he was given a crown. As a conqueror, he rode out to conquer. So these four horsemen come from Zechariah chapter 1 and Zechariah chapter 6. In Zechariah chapter 1, Zechariah chapter 6, and I recommend you read the part, told you to read the first part of Zechariah, because that will give you a really good idea of apocalyptic literature and how strange and weird that it all is. He sees four horsemen riding out to the north, the south, and all that kind of stuff, and they have multicolored horses. That idea comes from that, Zechariah chapter 1. However, even though the same idea of God sending horsemen out into the world is shared between these two passages, they're not exactly the same thing. And Zechariah, the horsemen are sent out to see what is happening around the world in order to report back to God. Now, it's not like God needs messengers to go out and record things and say, hey God, did you know that this is happening? The idea is that God is giving you a tangible or a metaphorical image that he actually does know what's happening. Okay, we, we don't understand how God knows everything, and so he gives us something that we can't understand. And so, plus, the, the, horse co the colors of the horses has nothing to do with what they do and what they are and that kind of stuff. So here we see these horsemen. The first one is the white horseman. The white horse rider wore a crown, which gives it authority. It carried a bow, which is weapons of mass destruction in their time period. Rode to conquer and conquest in order to conquer and take over other people. This horseman represents military power that brings destruction. This is a metaphor for military power. Now, is this a literal horseman that will lead a literal army on the earth one day? Possibly. Is this a demonic demon that is going to guide literal armies on the earth one day? 
possibly? Is this an angelic God that is obedient to Yahweh that is allowing these to happen? We see this. God sent an angelic holy angel to kill the firstborn of all the people in Egypt. God sent an angelic holy angel in order to bring and torment Saul. So is it a bad demon ruling and doing these things? Is it a good angel allowing this stuff to happen? Or is it just human nature and human and our military leaders? Don't know. I got my guesses and that kind of stuff. But it could be either one of these things. But the point is, is it represents military power to bring destruction. This is God allowing military nations and military armies to overcome his people on earth in order to destroy them or to oppress them or to enslave them, like the Assyrians, like the Babylonians, like the Persians, like the Greeks, like the Romans, and on and on and on and on. It's government who rises up and invades other nations and conquers them. Some think that this might be Jesus. White horse, crown, that kind of stuff. That obviously is Jesus, right? We keep seeing white, 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 white as a symbol of victory and righteousness and that kind of stuff. However, the Second Testament is never vague when you see Jesus. It is never vague. Like, oh, this might be Jesus. You figure it out. Okay? When Jesus does show up in chapter 19, it is so clear that it is him. And the fact that he shows up on a white horse there as if this is the first time. And the Bible makes such a big deal about his arrival and implies this is the first time that he's come back to earth. And there's no two second comings of Christ. It's, it's obvious that this is not Jesus because the Bible makes a very big deal and always makes it super clear that it was when it is him. Second, their themes are completely different. The first horseman, this white horseman, brings bloodshed, death, and slaughter that brings chaos. Whereas Jesus, when he comes back in Revelation chapter 19, brings righteousness, retribution that brings redemption. This just brings utter chaos to the world. But when Jesus comes back, he brings redemption and restores order. And so they have two different themes going on here. The other thing that makes this clear is that this angelic being or this physical human military conquest has a divine mandate from God. It is literally commanded to go out and do these things. Jesus is operating on his own when he appears in chapter 19. Third, it does not make sense for Jesus Christ to be the one breaking the seals and then riding out as the first horseman, then having to return to some kind of way to continue breaking the seals and then return again as another horseman. It's like he's breaking the seal, then he has to jump on his horse and ride out and then come back and then break another seal and then eventually he'll ride the horseman again. And so there just doesn't seem to be any kind of flow here. Some say this is the Antichrist, masquerading as an angel of light or a victorious thing or the Antichrist as looking like Christ pure and righteous. They get this from the idea that he wears a crown. He has a bow with no arrows. The, the, the idea is that he's, he's, a bow can also mean a covenant, and so he makes a false covenant, and, and, and then he's going to break that covenant and turn against people. However, this is reading a lot into the passage. Nowhere does it say that he makes a covenant with anybody. Nowhere does it say that he's breaking the covenant. Nowhere does it say that he's seen as good and welcome and champion, and then he turns on them. It says he rode out and he destroyed, Period. Likewise, when the Antichrist appears in chapter 13, it's clear. God doesn't make any, he, he makes it very clear that this is the Antichrist and he is there. The, the way that the language is mentioned, that this is the horseman, 
we, everybody agrees that the next three horsemen are general ideas. So if the next three horsemen are just general concepts, it doesn't make sense that the fourth horseman would be a very specific person. If they're general, this one has to be general as well in its ideas. The bow is a symbol of military power. You don't have to say that there's bow and arrows because everybody knows when you have a bow, you also have arrows, especially when you're Legolas and they never run out, if you ever watch the movie. Actually, it does run out the third one. It was like so awesome. It was like, oh my gosh, he finally ran out. So uh, not that I wanted them all to die, but I just wanted a little bit more realism. The bow is, the crown is a symbol of victory. These images are not unique to Jesus. They communicate some deeper meaning. In the time of the Roman Empire, the Parthians were known for riding white horses and carrying bows. The Romans did not ride white horses, and they did not go into war with bows and arrows. They were mostly swords, and that's how they fought. But the thing that Rome feared more than anything was the Parthians. The Parthians were the terrible beast under the bed, so to speak. That's what Rome was scared out of their mind about. Parthia was in what we know as modern-day Russia and Iraq and Iran and that part of the region. And they were afraid of them. And every time the Parthians came out, they always came from the north, and they came on white horses, often with no saddles, with bows and arrows. And so the idea is that this is a military invasion, a conquest of a foreign nation that is so scary that even Rome is scared of it. And so whatever your worst nightmare of a foreign invasion is, that's what this is. That's what this is. It just represents any scary outside military force that comes in and invades you. In modern day language, this is Hamas invading Israel. This is the Japanese invading Pearl Harbor. This is Japan invading Russia during the Red Massacre. Okay, this is Hitler coming into Poland and Romania. And I'm not picking like one nation's better than the other. I'm just giving historical examples. That's the idea here. If you take this as a futurist view, this is some military nation that is yet to come, some ultimate military nation that's going to invade Israel and overtake things and begin to mark the beginning of the end. Or it could literally be the Antichrist. In my personal view, I believe that we're currently in the seven-year tribulation period, seven as being metaphorical of a long period of time. Um, when Christ talks about the tribulation, he talks about it as everything between the first and second coming of Christ. He, this is very clear in Mark and Matthew. When he talks about the tribulation, he's referring to everything between the first and second coming of Christ. Um, even people who take a futurist view agree that Jesus is using that and everything between the free, from beginning and the end. I'm there. So in my view, I think that this is just happening over and over again. I believe in typology. So what is typology? I'm going to explain that and unpack that. Typology, prophecy works in two different ways. Prophecy can be foretelling, where you say, here we are today, and I'm going to point to something in the future and say, in the future, in this year, this thing's going to come and do this thing. And then we all have to wait for that date and that thing to happen before we know that I'm right. That's foretelling, right? One day, a child will come and be born in Bethlehem. Well, they all have to wait for thousands of years for that to happen. One day, Christ will come back a second time. We all have to wait for that to happen. Typology is when I'm talking about something currently today, and I say, 
it's kind of like something that happened back then to help you understand. We're facing something really confusing, and it's kind of like something that happened back then. Just like they had an oppressive government of the Assyrians, and God used the Assyrians to invade them and take over them and punish them for their sins. So now today, God is going to do the same thing with the Babylonians and invade you and overtake you again. And so he will do it again when he uses the Persians. And so he will do it again. And so they will keep saying, so every prophet. So Isaiah says, the Assyrians are coming to come and punish you, just like you did to the Canaanites for their sins. And Habakkuk says, the Babylonians are coming to punish you, just like they did with the Assyrians, dead to you in Israel. And then John the baptizer comes and says, the axe is at the tree, quoting Isaiah. Because Isaiah said the axe of the tree is the Babylonians. Now, John means the axe of the tree is who? The Romans, right? And so typology is my way of saying, I'm not saying that the Babylonians coming was predicting the coming of the Romans. I'm saying the Romans doing this is like when the Babylonians did that. And that's used a lot throughout the Bible. Hey, Jesus is, the the tabernacle did not predict Jesus but Jesus kind of liked the tabernacle in that he is da-da-da-da-da-da. Does that make sense? And Zephaniah makes this very clear that God uses, he's, he uses Syria and Babylon and says, just like I use Assyria and Babylon, so I will use every other nation to do the same thing. Anytime a nation comes and invades another nation, God is saying, I'm allowing it to happen. I'm allowing it to happen. I'm allowing it to happen. In my view, and like I said, I hold this loosely. I hold this loosely. I I believe that this is the way that the Bible works. This is why I take the view. I I believe very strongly that this is the right way, but I'm not going to argue 100% and die on that hill and break fellowship with you. But I believe that this is pretty much just every nation coming again and again and again and again. And every time a nation turns to itself and trusts in itself and then makes alliances with other nations, then God says, I'm going to let you have what you want. And usually what happens is those nations invade in some kind of form. And I'm not saying that every invasion is God punishing you. I'm saying that every invasion is God allowing it to happen. And probably because we were not trusting the right thing. And if you go throughout history, you can pretty much see that. Every invasion that's ever happened is usually because that country did something really dumb or very arrogant or self-righteous or trust the wrong thing. World War I and World War II were easily prevented. Easily prevented. Go talk to a historian. There were lots of things we could have done to prevent, but we didn't want to do it because that was going to be too hard for us. And then we reaped the consequences when we finally had to get involved and do things. There's not a historian out there who will tell you that we could not stop World War I and World War II long before it ever happened. But it was a lot of our own selfishness and Europe's selfishness that did not prevent it. And that's a pretty historical fact. This is the idea that it's just happening again and again. Now, that still leaves room for the futurist view because could there be some big ultimate invading nation that will be the mark of all, the end of all things? Yeah, I'm totally open to a futurist view. Because if I believe this is happening over and over and over again, then I believe they can happen in the future. Does that kind of make sense?